Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We are continuing our series of sermons through the gospel according to Luke, and this morning we come to chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 27 through 36. Luke 11, verses 27 through 36, please give your full attention to God's holy, inerrant, and powerful word. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that wished you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. There are two times during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ where God the Father spoke with an audible voice to be heard by human beings like you and me. The first time was when Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately after he was baptized, it says that a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, it doesn't say in the text in any of the Gospels how many people heard the voice of God the Father. It may have only actually been Jesus and John the Baptist in that actual case. It may have been a, a crowd of John the Baptist's disciples. But God the Father spoke, and this small group of people heard God speak from heaven. The second time is when Jesus took Peter and James and John with him up to the top of the mountain and the Bible says he was transfigured. He began to shine with a light as bright as the sun. And at that point, again, God the Father spoke from heaven and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he added, listen to him. What an awesome moment to hear God speak from heaven. But in this case, only the three disciples of Jesus heard it. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Makes you think about it. The most important religious question in the world is the question, 
Who is Jesus Christ? All the three major world religions wrestle with that question. Everybody, even if you're not a religious person, has to answer that question for yourself. Who is Jesus Christ? The most important religious question in the world. Why then doesn't God the Father make a daily public service announcement where he speaks from heaven and everyone around the world can hear him and he says, Jesus Christ is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Wouldn't that make our job as evangelists a lot easier? Why doesn't he do that? Why? Well, that question about why God doesn't use miraculous events, what the Bible calls signs, supernatural events, in order to help people believe, that's really at the center of this passage that we read just a moment ago. Why, God, why doesn't God speak from heaven? Why doesn't he do spectacular signs, turn the sky green or change the oceans into purple? Why doesn't he do things that, that would catch people's attention and say, you should believe what I've told you about Jesus Christ? Well, the setup of this is all the way back in verses 14 and 15 that we read a couple of weeks ago. Because what had just happened before the text we read this morning is that Jesus had been healing people, and particularly he had been casting out demons. But some scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, they were there lurking in the crowds. They were enemies of Jesus. They were trying to bring him down to disprove him. And these scribes and Pharisees actually claimed, yes, they couldn't deny that Jesus had the power and authority to cast out demons, but they actually claimed that he was doing it by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. And Jesus dealt with that, as we saw a couple weeks ago. But it says, and we didn't dwell on it much when we looked at the passage, but it mentions that there were some other scribes and Pharisees that weren't quite so bold in their blasphemy. But it says in verse 15 that it says, Others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, wait a minute. This is the Jesus Christ who has been casting out demons left and right, healing people with deformities and diseases everywhere, fed 5,000, more than 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, who even raised somebody from the dead. And these scribes and Pharisees are saying, give us a bigger sign. Do something more grand, more spectacular, and then we'll believe in you. Luke says that they were testing Jesus. They were testing Jesus. Prove yourself to me, then maybe we'll believe. Do something really big. Do you hear the hiss of Satan in their voices? Because that's how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He actually took him from the wilderness to the pinnacle, to the very top of the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, throw yourself down from here because the Bible says that angels will catch you, won't allow you to dash your feet against the stones, you won't be harmed. Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple to prove to you and to the world who you are. And Jesus said, if you remember, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We're not to demand signs from God so that we will trust him. We're not to demand signs from God so that we will believe in him. But that's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. 
got to stop for a moment and say, what were the purpose of miracles in Scripture? Even today, people don't understand the purpose of the signs and wonders that the Scriptures talk about. When you look at the whole course of biblical history, and really even outside of biblical history, miraculous signs have one of two purposes, according to Scripture. The first purpose of miraculous signs is to authenticate those who claim to speak for God. So the prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah, Elisha, they performed miracles to show that they were God's spokesmen. God did the miracles, but he did them through those prophets so that people would know that they were speaking for God and they could trust the words that they spoke were coming directly from God. The same way with Jesus, the same way with the apostles. These were signs to authenticate them as God's official spokesman who could speak with his authority to could actually convey his word to sinners like you and me. That's one of the purpose of miraculous signs, miraculous acts, supernatural events. The second one, the second purpose, and usually these go together, is to affirm the faith or reassure the faith of those who are seeking Christ by faith. Those who who do believe, but their faith is weak or it's, it's shaky. So in some cases, God will do signs in order to reassure those who already have faith. Good example is Gideon in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon is that he was called by God to be a military deliverer, a military general who would lead the small armies of of Israel and actually made the army of Gideon smaller so that he would truly trust in the Lord. And then he's going to lead this small army of Gideon up against a much greater enemy of Israel. And Gideon asked God to do a sign. He said, I've got this fleece here, this sheep's fur. I've got this fleece. I'm going to lay it on the ground. And Lord, if you really are with me and you really are going to work through me and and you're going to bless us with this great victory, then could you make the fleece wet but the ground dry in the morning? Because that would be a miracle. That's something that couldn't happen naturally. Well, God did that. Woke up the next morning, fleece was wet, ground was dry. Okay, that was great, God. Could, could you do this again except do it the opposite and make the fleece dry and the ground wet with dew? And God did it. He catered to the request. He he honored the request because Gideon was saying, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And God is always pleased by that request. I believe, Lord, but help me believe more. Help me have a stronger faith. And even sometimes in rare, very rare circumstances, he'll use miracles to reassure that faith. What he never does is when somebody says, pridefully, arrogantly, sets himself up as a judge and says, God, prove yourself to me. Blow me away, God, then I'll believe in you. Until then, I reserve judgment. And that's the kind of people that were these scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus said to them, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we, we Christians, we walk by faith, not by sight. That's an important core principle of what it means to be a disciple, is that we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't rely on what our eyes can see in order to believe, in order to serve. 
We walk by faith. There's a good reason for that. There's a relational reason for that. Because if you want to have a relationship with somebody, you better trust them. And if you're in a relationship with somebody, whether it's a husband or wife or a child or a parent or friend, and you don't trust their words, if you don't trust what they say to you, then that's a broken relationship. Trust is the basis of every relationship. Trust is what binds two people together. And in order to have trust, you must be able to trust each other's words. And that's true with God as well. In order to have a relationship with God, you have to trust his word. Not demand signs from him so that you'll believe and trust in him. It's a good thing for me every once in a while to stop at the flower store on the way home, pick up a bouquet of roses and take them home to my wife to tell my wife that I love her as a sign that I love her. Here's some flowers. But what would you say about my marriage if my wife demanded that I bring home a bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates and a mushy I love you card every day? What would you think of my marriage if I had to do that every day to prove to her that I loved her? That would be an unhealthy marriage. We walk by faith, not by sight. We trust the Lord. We don't demand that the Lord show himself continually to be trustworthy. So what are some ways in which we live by the word of God? By trusting in God's word. Well, I think these examples that are given here show us in the passage today what it means to live by trust, live by faith, not live by signs or miracles or evidences. The first thing we learn is that we trust in God's word in order to really know Jesus Christ. We get to know Jesus Christ by trusting in the word of God. Look at verse 27. Jesus is walking through the crowds and a woman, obviously a huge fan of Jesus, she shouts out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now that sounds really odd to us. But in Jewish language, in Jewish culture, that was a high compliment. Basically, we might say something like, boy, your mother must be so proud of you. But really, she's saying more than that, isn't she? She's saying, boy, what a great thing to be your mother, Jesus. To be that close to you. To have that kind of intimate relationship with you, to be your mother. What a great thing that would be. She wanted to be close to Jesus. She wanted to have an intimate relationship with him. Any Jewish mother in the Old Testament, as they believed in the promises of the coming Messiah, the one who would be the redeemer of God's people, the one who would pay for God's, the sins of God's people, the one who would make atonement, the one who would reconcile God's people to God, the one who would reign over all the creation, the one who would restore this fallen world into a perfect new heavens and new earth. As they hoped in that promise, every Jewish mother said, might I be the one to be the mother of the Messiah? What an awesome thing to give birth to the one who would fulfill all of God's promises to his people. Elizabeth understood that that was this incredible blessing for Mary to receive. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, remember? 
And when Mary went to visit her, you remember the first thing that Elizabeth said when she greeted Mary, when Mary greeted her, she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary herself recognized what a high and incredible privilege she was called to, to be the mother of the Messiah. She said, behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Yes, she was an incredibly uniquely blessed woman. And Jesus, Jesus here, when this woman says this, he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't deny that Mary was incredibly blessed to have that unique calling. But what he says is, all of you can be more greatly blessed than Mary. Because, he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This woman is saying, Jesus, I want to have a close relationship with you. And he says, if that's what you want, hear the word of God and keep it. Because that's the true blessing in this world. Do you remember one time Jesus was teaching in a house and all the people were crowded around him and somebody came to the edge of the room and they said to Jesus, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are here. They want to see you. And you know how your mother is. If she calls and you're in a meeting, you better leave the meeting and go find out what your mother wants. That's what we expect. Like, oh, my mother, my brothers, I, you know, I'll, hold on, I'll be right back. I need to take this call. I need to go talk to these people because they're my special relatives. But Jesus doesn't say that, does he? What he says is, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He's saying the same thing. Hear the word of God and keep it. Hear the word of God and do it. Hear the word of God and apply it to life. Hear the word of God and trust in the word of God. That's if you want to draw close to me. You want to really know me. You want to be in an intimate relationship with me. Hear the word of God and keep it. Later, Jesus would say, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, Hear my word and keep it. Hear my word and do it. We always want to be like and to be close to those people that we admire. And if you want to be close to Jesus, you need to hear his word and do it. Secondly, we trust in God's word when it tells us about the coming of judgment. We trust in the word of God when it tells us about the coming judgment. These unbelieving skeptics, these scribes and Pharisees, they demanded a sign and Jesus said, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be this generation. Nineveh was the capital of the evil, barbaric empire of Assyria in the Old Testament. Not only an enemy to God's people, but a vicious, brutal enemy who treated the people that it conquered in ways that we can't even describe in polite company. This is a terrible nation. Nineveh was a prominent city of the Assyrians. And, pro and, and Jonah was a prophet of God, called by God to go to Nineveh, the enemy of his people, and tell them that God was about to judge their city, about to destroy their city in judgment. 
But if you know the story, Jonah hated the Ninevites, hated the Assyrians for good reason, and he refused to go. He ran the other direction. God sent a storm at sea to stop the boat that he had fled in. And instead of saying, okay, God, I will hear your word and keep it, he says to the other sailors, throw them over. He asked to commit suicide instead of obeying God. But God, in his grace, created a great fish who swallowed Jonah. He was inside that great fish for three days, and then the fish spewed him out on the shore. And finally, Jonah obeyed and went and told the Ninevites that in 40 days, God was going to destroy them. Gave them a 40-day warning that judgment was coming. Now, let me just pause for a moment and point out that that's probably one of the hardest stories in all of Scripture to believe in terms of its historicity. But Jesus spoke of it as a historical event. He spoke of Jonah as a historical person who was swallowed by a historical fish. But having said that then, Jesus says, how did the Ninevites respond? They repented. An incredible act of God's grace that those people repented and God did not send the judgment. How is Jonah like Jesus? Well, actually, Matthew's account of the same interaction spells it out for us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Both Jonah and Jesus came promising that a day of judgment would come. Both Jonah and Jesus came back from the dead. Jonah figuratively, from the depths of the sea, Jesus literally back from the dead as he walked out of that tomb, conquering death once for all. Both came saying that judgment is coming. Jonah said that a judgment on Nineveh is coming in 40 days. Jesus promised that he would return and he would sit on the throne of judgment and everyone would stand before him and have to give an account for all their thoughts, words, and deeds. But Jesus' point here is to contrast the, the wicked Ninevites and these self-righteous, pious scribes and Pharisees that had rejected him. He said, the Ninevites repented. They will rise up, he said, at the judgment with this generation and condemn, condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, according to scripture, Jonah didn't even perform any signs. He didn't do any miracles in Nineveh. Yet the wicked Ninevites believed his message and repented. On the other hand, you have these scribes and Pharisees. Think of all the light that they were exposed to, all the truth that they were exposed to for generations. According to Romans 9, they had the, the adoptions, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And more than that, they had in their midst the great prophet, the great high priest, the great king, Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah was in their midst, and yet, in all the signs and miracles that he did, and yet they rejected him. You know, that's the danger of being close to the truth. 
maybe growing up in a Christian home, be always being around the church, is that you're near the truth, but you don't receive the truth. You hear the truth all the time, but you don't keep it. You don't trust it. You don't obey it. That's one of the most dangerous places to be, is that you're so impacted by the truth all the time, and yet none of it comes within. You don't truly receive it. We believe the Word of God, and we trust in the Word of God because it tells us that judgment is coming. History is linear. History is progressing towards a certain definite final end. And that is when Jesus Christ returns and everyone will stand before him as the judge of all people. God is the judge. Jesus Christ carries out his judgment. There will be a separation of righteousness from wickedness, from what is just, from what is unjust. The holy and the wicked will be separated on that great day. We trust that that's happening. We have joy in that because we know that Jesus is the one who was in the grave but has been raised from the dead. We trust that when he died on that cross, he died in our place and God's wrath and judgment that we deserve for our sins of thought, word, and deed were placed upon him and he paid for them in full. And we trust in the word of God when it tells us that he conquered death, he was raised from the dead, and that he now lives and reigns as the king of kings. We trust God's word that that is true. We trust the witnesses that Christ has appointed that that is true. But think about how necessary it is to how you live every day of your life that you know that judgment day is coming, that Christ is returning. That's the only way that we can deal with the injustice of this world. That's the only way we can deal. This world is full of wickedness and chaos and brokenness and pain. The only way we can deal with that is to know that Christ is coming again and that judgment will happen and that everything that is wrong will be made right. We depend upon that. Because I tell you, if the end of this story is wrong, if this isn't the word of God, and history doesn't end the way that this book says it ends, then life is meaningless. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's all there is. We trust in God's word about the coming judgment. Thirdly, this passage tells us that we trust in the word of God because it is the wisdom of God. It's how life works. The word of God, the Bible, is the description of who God is, who we are, how the world works, why is sin here, why are people so wicked, what is the hope. The wisdom of God's word is what we trust in. Jesus also here contrasts the skepticism of the scribes and Pharisees with the one he calls the queen of the south in verse 31. She says, that this queen of the south is going to also rise on that great judgment day and she will condemn these scribes and Pharisees 
For she came, he says, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, in the Old Testament, the queen of the south is called the queen of Sheba. We don't know where Sheba was for sure. Some scholars think it was in southern, the southern part, most, most part of Arabia, down where um, Yemen is today. And that may be where she was a queen. Or possibly other scholars think she, she was, uh, her nation of Sheba was in northern Africa. But either place, she traveled well over a thousand miles by the means of transportation of the first century through very rugged territory to come and to hear if the reports that she had heard about King Solomon and his wisdom and the, the fruits of his wisdom, whether it was true or not. Let me, it's, it's really worth taking the time to read this for you from 1 Kings chapter 10. These are the first nine verses. Listen to this encounter between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and on my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I've heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Let me remind you where Solomon's wisdom came from. He was not born wise. He did not become wise through great study and reflection. He did not meditate on the top of a mountain somewhere to become wise. He became wise when God came to him and said, I'm going to give you anything you want. You can have riches. You can have power. You can have anything you want. What do you want, Solomon? And Solomon said, give me wisdom. His wisdom came from God. His wisdom was the word of God. And what was the effect of him reigning by the wisdom, the exceptional wisdom that God gave him, was this powerful, prosperous, mind-blowing. I mean, she says she was blown away. Her breath was out of her. She was so blown away by the evidence of Solomon's kingdom, which was driven by the wisdom of God's word. You know, that was really the high point of Israel. The whole history of Israel from that point on is a story of God's people rejecting the wisdom of God's word and the effects led to slavery to other nations. It led to poverty. It led to oppression. It led to great suffering. But this is really the high point of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon the king. All that great work of David his father and Solomon comes in this gift of wisdom and he builds this Fantastic kingdom. That's what Israel was supposed to be in the Old Covenant. It was supposed to be a city on a hill. 
It was supposed to be a light to the nations to say, this is what living by the wisdom of God's word looks like. And that's what the queen of the south or queen of Sheba saw. We don't trust in signs. We trust in the word of God. All the evidence that we need is to see that living by the word of God is the only wise way to live. That living by the word of God leads to peace. It leads to true prosperity, not just material prosperity, but true prosperity in terms of both belongings and relationships and inner peace. It leads to satisfaction and fulfillment. It's the abundant life that Jesus promises to his followers, the good life. To disregard or to reject the word of God is to pursue darkness and strife and anxiety and emptiness. The word of God works because it is the word of God. He's the one who designed us. He's the one against whom we have rebelled. It's his law that is a reflection of what is good and pure and holy and righteous. I've been living by the word of God for 43 years, very imperfectly. But I have been living by the word of God. I have been gaining year by year what it means to be wise in the word of God. And I'll tell you this, I would not trade my life with anybody's that I know. Because Christ has given me that abundant life. The word of God has proven itself to me as I have lived by its teachings. I trust in the word of God. It's earned my trust over decades. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's what this last section in verses 33 through 36 is all about. Jesus talks about lamps and light and the language is a little bit confusing, but when you dig into it, it's clear what he's saying. The light that he talks about there in verses 33 to 36, that light is the word of God. It's the revelation of truth. And he compares the process by which we see things. That's the analogy he's using here, that we see by the light that's external to us. The sun gives us light, and we see everything in light of the light of the sun. We know what's true and real in the physical world, in the material world, because the light has revealed it to our eyes. And so Jesus uses that to talk about spiritual light. And he says, the light, spiritually speaking, the truth is objective. It's outside of us. It's absolute. It's revealed from heaven. It's powerful. It's inerrant, but it's out there. It's outside of us, and we need to receive it within us. Now, that's a radical message in this world, isn't it? Because we live in a culture that talks about her truth, and his truth, and your truth, and my truth. No, there's the truth, the light of God's word, And we need to receive the light of God's word. And so Jesus says, the lamp is like a, your eye is like a lamp. Your eye allows the light to enter in. It's like an aperture, maybe a better, more modern term we would use, be an aperture that allows the light to come into your inner being. And so Jesus is saying, 
if your eye is healthy, in other words, spiritually healthy, if you've been given the gift of faith, where you hear the word of God, you trust the word of God, and you obey the word of God, that's having healthy eyes of faith, then the light will come into you and transform you from within. If you receive, if you have healthy spiritual eyes and you receive that light and it transforms you within, what happens is eventually as you become more and more light within, Jesus says in verse 36, you become wholly bright. And I think what he's alluding to there is that what Bill talked about at the beginning of the service is that we become bright from within and we become the light of the world. And it's interesting how Jesus uses both. He says, on one hand, he says, I am the light of the world, that external, objective, absolute light of truth. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you, the church, you who are my followers, you are the light of the world. Because as you receive that light, as you're transformed by that light, you begin to emit that light and you can draw people to the true light, who is Jesus Christ. So let me just ask a couple of questions as I close. Most importantly, what is your relationship to the light of truth today? Jesus says, how foolish is it if you've been given light to put it under a basket or to put it in the cellar where nobody is? Is that your relationship with the light? Is that it's not really part of your life? It's not illuminating your life? You're not receiving any of it? It's been put away. Why would you put a flashlight in the toolbox and shut the toolbox? What a foolish thing to do with the light. But so many people, that's how they live their life. The Bible's on the shelf, if they have one at all. Have you rejected the light? I assume if you're here, and you knew this was a biblical church, then you came because you have some relationship with the light. But that's what I'm asking you to analyze this morning. What relationship do you have with the light of God's word, which reveals to us who Jesus is so that you can draw near to Jesus? Is the light dim? Is it because your eyesight is dim? Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts might be illuminated by the Holy Spirit, that we might receive the light of God's truth. That's my prayer for all of you today. Are you receiving, is, is the light in your life dim because you have only occasional interaction with the Word of God? Let me just take you back to that central statement of this whole passage. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. What's your relationship with the Word of God today? Open your eyes. Ask the Lord to give you clearer spiritual sight that you might receive the light and be transformed by it to a much greater degree than you are right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us to grope in the darkness like we were before you came to us. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes, for taking away our diseased eyes, our blind eyes, and giving us eyes that see your glory and the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for the word of God. What an amazing gift 
that our creator, whom we have rebelled against to such a degree, would not only give us his written word, but send your only son to not only show the light to us, but to die in our place that we who are blind might be able to see. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of the word of God. Thank you for the light that is in Christ. Lord, may we draw nearer to him as we hear your word and keep it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.